welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. The secured overnight financing rate. It is time to meet the secured overnight financing rate, or SOFR, a new reference rate introduced by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York today. It's basically the U.S.'s LIBOR replacement, and SOFR's debut is a critical step in the effort to wean more than $350 trillion of securities off LIBOR. Joining me is Eric Talley, co-director of the Milstein Center for Global Markets and Corporate Ownership at Columbia Law School. Eric, we've talked a lot on the show about the rigging of LIBOR by U.S. and European lenders that were forced to pay billions of dollars to settle charges. Is that the main reason for the push to replace LIBOR, or are there other reasons? I think in part it is, but but you have to remember that the reason for the the rigging scandal was itself born of the very design of LIBOR, which was you know to try to collect an enormous amount of information about all kinds of different uh, tenors of borrowing in different types of securities. So much so that the banks that were having to make the reports couldn't actually report that they were doing transactions for some of the reports that they were supposed to be talking about. So it it quickly became known that this was sort of a hypothetical form of reporting. It was almost an invitation for various types of manipulation. So I think in part this is because of the scandal, the LIBOR reporting scandal, but that itself, the seeds for that, I think were sown in what was ultimately a well-intentioned but poorly designed product. So what is SOFR and how is it better than LIBOR? Well, here's what SOFR does. Uh, so uh, the, 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 the SOFR rate basically uses uh, not just hypothetical statements about what cost of borrowing would be, but uses a specific type of borrowing, which is overnight repo or repurchase agreements. This is a very, very active market. And instead of uh, basing it on a survey, you can actually benchmark the SOFR rate to the you know to actual transactions that are made in the market. That turns out to be very, very helpful because it's not hypothetical. It's real and it adjusts in a real way from a day-to-day basis. So, so in, in, in going with this new benchmark rate, uh, the, the, the New York Fed has, has, has essentially uh, uh, decided that, uh, uh, that, that, or that the Alternative Reference Rate Committee has decided that this was, uh, uh, you know, an area where data or quality of data was going to eclipse the, you know, the heterogeneity of the product. That's also one of the weak spots of the of the new rate, uh, in that it is only uh, relating to overnight rates in U.S. dollars, and it's secured lending. Usually, these uh, these so-called repurchase agreements have a lot of collateral associated with them, and and because of that, it may not be as useful for contracts that are trying to find an appropriate benchmark for, say, year-long or six-month lending uh, on an unsecured basis, and that's going to be one of the biggest adjustment costs in trying to uh, trying to adapt to the new rate. Well, how complex will the transition be from LIBOR to SOFR? Well, in some ways, it will be very, very quick, particularly for short-term uh, borrowing. I could certainly imagine the benchmark rate, uh, you know, and it's already happened to some extent, uh, has already transitioned within some pr- private contracting over to the SOFA rate. And, and that will be a pretty easy transition to make. I think it really is when you're talking about maybe longer-term instruments in which, uh, you know, the short-term rates and the long-term rates don't necessarily line up as well, and maybe there's more volunt- volatility in the yield 
curve or the, or the difference between long-term rates and short-term rates, that you'll start to see a little bit more of a resistance to pick up these, uh, these, uh, the, these new benchmarks. You have to remember, however, that by 2021, uh, the, the, the British uh, uh, regulators, the Financial Conduct Authority, is going to stop requiring firms to, to, to make reports into LIBOR. So it may be that by the time we hit that point, everyone's going to realize that the jig is up and they're going to have to find some other form of, of benchmarking uh, rate. This is a reliable one. It's particularly good for short-term uh, instruments. It's not going to be as good for longer-term instruments, but it may be the best thing that's around. So the Federal Reserve began publishing the rate today. What happens next and how long? Well, yeah, yeah. So, so a lot of a lot of this is up to private contracting, right? There is a lot of private contracts out there right now that are built on LIBOR as their benchmark rate, and that's going to involve and that's got a lot of network uh, externalities associated with it. People are used to those ty- sorts of contracts. Uh, some of those uh, some of those entities that author those form contracts, uh, such as ISDA, are going to maybe want to adapt their contracts to say, here's a new template that you could uh, that you could use SOFR as the as the benchmark rate for, and then people are going to have to start a dot. Uh, adopting that as a benchmark rate. Uh, to some extent, that's already started to happen, and my guess is that with a greater notoriety and greater sense that other people are using this rate, people are going to have greater degrees of comfort in, in, uh, in adapting to it itself. One has to remember that when LIBOR, you know, LIBOR hasn't been around forever as well. It's only been around since the, since the late 1980s, and it really did pick up steam relatively quickly. This industry is now much larger uh, of financial contracting that hinges on some type of a reference benchmark. And so there's really going to be a, a perceived need to find something that works well. My guess is that the shorter-term instruments are going to migrate to it pretty quickly. Longer-term ones may hold off for a while just to make sure that, uh, that you know, their, their simulations and modeling make it look like they're not uh, bearing risks that they, they were unaware of. And then they're, they're slowly going to come on board. And by the time that, uh, that the FCA stops collecting LIBOR information, you know, in about three years, uh, you know, most people will have made this transition. Now, it could work. Oh, go ahead. No, I was I was going to ask you: is is this is LIBOR is um, so for the only uh, benchmark in the running? Let's say, or are there other countries suggesting alternatives? Yeah, and uh, there are other countries suggesting other alternatives. Uh, in there have been uh, several alternatives that have been bandied about, and to some extent, those are still being bandied about. Uh, my sense is that uh, that uh, some form of short-term repo or other or commercial paper rates are the ones that are most likely uh, to, to to have legs. Uh, though there are some uh, financial authorities that are considering using uh, the rate paid for government borrowing. Uh, that was one of the candidates that uh, that the the uh, Alternative Reference Rate Committee considered uh, one of the reasons they decided not to go with um, with uh, uh, you know something related to say U.S. Treasuries or other types of, of, of bank borrowing is that sometimes those are safe havens in, in times of, uh, of of risk. I've got to stop and- you there, Eric. We will come back to SOFR, I'm sure many times. That's Eric Talley of Columbia Law School. Jurors are getting a rare look at Washington's political intelligence industry at the trial of a consultant charged with passing government information to hedge funds, the first trial of its kind. The prosecutor says it's a case about greed on Wall Street and corruption in D.C. The defense attorney says New York is the city that never sleeps and D.C. is the town that never shuts up.
My guest is an expert in insider trading, Peter Henning, a professor at Wayne State University Law School. Peter, David Blazak, the consultant, is on trial with the former government employee who allegedly tipped him and the two partners of the hedge fund, Deerfield Management. Tell us a little about the charges. Well, this is one part of the case is a standard insider trading case. So they're accused of securities fraud, uh, wire fraud, which is also usually brought together with this. Uh, Another part of the case is interesting, though, that um, the defendants are also charged with uh, illegal conversion of government property. In other words, that uh, Worrell, the government employee essentially improperly took government information and then passed it on to the others. This is like receiving stolen property. And so this is something you normally don't see in an insider trading case. And I suspect prosecutors have this charge in there essentially as a backup in case the insider trading part falls apart. Why is the insider uh, trading part more difficult for prosecutors than the typical, what you'd call the typical Wall Street insider trading cases that we've seen so much of in the Southern District? Right. Well, usually in the typical insider trading case, it's corporate information that is being taken from the company. So an earnings announcement, a deal, perhaps um, a new invention, something like that, that's going to bump the stock up or down. Um, What this is, is about information about how the government was going to reimburse for Medicare and Medicaid uh, procedures or procedures in which doctors would be reimbursed. And typically, that type of information seeps out in advance. So uh, an interesting question here, and that's what the defense attorney referenced, that was it really confidential information? Corporate information is usually kept confidential, at least until the company has to disclose it to everyone. Government information has a way of washing through the system. And, you know, this idea of Washington is the culture of leaks and everybody talks in Washington. How far do you think that defense will take them? Because we've seen cases, for example, the Jesse Litvak case, the bond trader who said everybody does this, and it doesn't always work. Right, yeah. Everybody does it. It usually is not a very good appeal. It didn't work in kindergarten. It's probably not (laughs) going to work in a federal court. But it'll be interesting to see how a a Manhattan or or a New York jury responds to a description of how Washington works. We know Washington is filled with leaks, but there's also an aspect here that there is a level of transparency that we expect out of the government, that the government, leaving out the national security, security area, the government doesn't suddenly announce a complete change in policy that this is usually signaled. And so might it be that this really wasn't the kind of market-moving information that we see in the corporate context? If you're going to announce blockbuster earnings or a drop in your earnings, that usually has an effect on the stock. This was about something a step removed even from the companies that had a stake in the amount of government reimbursement through Medicaid and Medicare. The government star witness is a former Deerfield partner who pleaded guilty and is cooperating. So that's a tough witness for the defense. Are they admitting a lot of the facts here and going with the this isn't confidential line or are they disputing? 
Well, I, I think, and this is typical in most insider trading cases, they're admitting a lot of the facts. They, they all admit the Deerfield, the hedge fund investors say, yeah, we bought the shares. Um, Blazak said, yeah, I passed along this information. So really what this is a fight about is figuring out, um, was it confidential uh, and was it material information? In other words, important to the market. And then also you have another aspect here, too, with the two hedge fund defendants, did they know about the benefit that Blazak passed along to Worrell, the government employee? That's part of the famous Newman case that remains viable, that a tippee, what's called a downstream tippee, has to know about the benefit, or at least that there was a benefit, provided to the source of information. So that's probably going to be another fight, at least for those defendants. So government has a lot of issues it has to deal with in this case. So I don't think this is an easy one. They have a good record in insider trading cases, but it'll be interesting to see how this one plays out. Depending on how this one plays out, does this indicate that federal prosecutors are going to trade sending Wall Streeters to prison for trading on inside information to taking on Washington's culture of leaks? Well, that, that's interesting. Uh, this is the first one, and it's a, what's called a political intelligence firm, uh, is what Blazek ran. Uh, are we going to see more policing in this area? Uh, this may be the start, but I, this also may just be the best case that they have, and they're probably hopeful that it sends a message to other political intelligence firms. You had better be careful. Peter, about a minute here, but the the problem seems to be that Many government employees go on to become consultants, and their clients expect them to leverage their former colleagues to get a heads-up on information or other kinds of information. Isn't that why they're hiring them? Oh, absolutely. Welcome to the revolving door. That, uh, I mean, we see it uh, in every agency, uh, an agency I'm quite familiar with, the SEC. Uh, High-level people routinely go to law firms, uh, and one of the things that you sell is your access. Um, not information, but I can get to the people who have information. Um, it, will this stop the revolving door? No, but it might put a little bit of a chill into companies that are looking to hire people because they want their Rolodex. It's, it's a fascinating case, and we are going to follow it closely with you. That's Peter Henning. Thanks so much, Peter, as always. He's a professor at Wayne State University Law School, an expert in the area of insider trading and criminal, white-collar criminal law. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.